Hi, welcome to the podcast of our Wednesday night study here at First Baptist Church to Queen as we go through the book of Revelation. My name is Dr. Josh Herwick, and I'm the pastor here at First Baptist to Queen. And over the next few months, we will be looking verse by verse through the book of Revelation. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us here at First Baptist Church DeQueen at our website, dequeen.church. There on our website, you can find all the information you need to get in contact with us, and we can't wait to hear from you. Feel free to drop a like or share this podcast if you find it helpful as well. So, in our last podcast of our Wednesday night study, we, we saw that uh, God in His throne room was being praised, and then Jesus as the Lamb came in to the throne room. He was being praised. He took from God a scroll that God had in his right hand that was sealed with seven seals. And the 24 elders that are in the throne and the four living creatures that are in the throne room uh, are also all praising Jesus. And we see here where we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, that praise continued. John writes, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, he mentions there a new song. New songs are sung here in Revelation 5, 9 and 10, but also in chapter 14, verse 3. And that is referenced from an Old Testament passage in Isaiah 42, verse 10, uh, where it's prophesied that they need to sing to the Lord a new song. But why, why a new song? I and mean, we've got lots of great songs, uh, old songs, newer songs. Why a new song here? Well, it seems to be that the circumstance that John is experiencing and witnessing necessitates an entirely new song, one that has been unsullied by any previous situation, experience, or emotion as we often tie our emotions to particular songs. No other song that has been meant for some other situation would be appropriate here for this moment. And we see that Christ's worthiness in the song, it stems from his sacrificial death. And that sacrifice is given to all people. Salvation is presented throughout the entire book of Revelation as intended for all of humanity. Here in chapter 5 and chapter 7, 11, 13, and 14, salvation is described as for anybody and everybody, just as it says here, every tribe, language, people, and nation. And the believers have been made into one kingdom and priests to our God. So the authority in the kingdom, the unification of believers in the priests, uh, that those things are only found because of our relationship to God. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now notice here, the voice of the angels, the voice is singular, 
even though the angels are plural. So this is a whole bunch of angels speaking with a unified singular voice. John calls them myriads of myriads, thousands and thousands. This is a vast multitude, so massive that numbers do not exist adequate enough to count them. The word there, myriads, it's used, uh, means innumerable. John cannot count these angels because there are so many. And these angels praise, and they list seven expressions of worship of which Jesus is worthy. So the seven there, the number seven, that uh, you know symbolizes perfection. This is a perfect expression of worship. Uh, Jesus is worthy of these things, of power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And the worthiness of perfect worship or perfect worthiness of worship lies with Jesus alone. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So while Revelation 4 ended with God being worshiped, Revelation 5 here ends with Jesus being worshiped. By saying every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all things in them, John is emphasizing the inclusivity of everything in existence praising God. Every created thing recognizes the Lamb's worthiness. And the four living creatures say in unity, Amen which means it is true. It's true what they're saying, and we confirm it. Uh, and then the elders fall down and worshiped. And we, we see from Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, the worship being offered to God and here offered to Jesus, that the worship is linked for both Jesus and God because they are determined in the worship to be one and the same. Now, before we get into Revelation 6, there's some things we got to understand of what's about to happen in the next few chapters. There are some who take Revelation 6 as the beginning of what some people refer to as the tribulation, which they describe as a seven-year period of, of great difficulty, the last half of the seven-year period being specifically terrible, and that that three and a half years they call the great tribulation. Some others view Revelation 6 as the beginning of the great tribulation, after both the rapture of the church and the, the first three and a half years of peace, as opposed to the last three and a half years of great difficulty. Now, the, the phrase itself, the great tribulation, is specifically mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 24, 21, but he uses it more as a description of the times rather than a specific title assigned to the period that we're talking about here in the book of Revelation. Now, a period of time uh, is referenced uh, to as a period of great tribulation in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. But again, it's not referred to as the title of that period of time, but more, this will be a time of great trial, a time of great difficulty. And in addition, uh, th the, the, a period of three and a half years specifically is mentioned in uh, Revelation 11, verse 2, and Revelation 13, verse 5. Um, both of those refer to a time of great persecution. But backing up a little bit, 
uh, I mentioned just a minute ago, a phrase called the rapture. Uh, this idea, this concept, is not specifically mentioned in the book of Revelation. However, with that understanding, there are several things to point out. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 25, Jesus said, Only hold fast what you have until I come. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, I am coming soon. Now, Jesus is speaking in both of those passages specifically to believers of meeting him. So he talks about holding fast until I come, the idea that believers will meet him at some point. Well, Paul addresses this idea when talking about something else. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 and following, Paul writes this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So what we see here is that a trumpet will sound, and then in the twinkling of an eye, Christians will all be changed and given eternal bodies. Now, keeping this in mind, so a trumpet will sound, and then almost instantly, Christians will be given eternal bodies. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God. So that verse ties it back to the first Corinthians passage. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now here, a voice like a trumpet, which in the book of Revelation, there's only one voice that is like a trumpet, and that is the voice of Jesus. So the voice of Jesus will sound, Jesus will call out, and then it says the Christians will meet Jesus in the air to be with him eternally. Now you take this passage along with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this moment in the air seems to be the twinkling of an eye moment that Paul mentions uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, when Christians will then receive eternal bodies. Now, it's important to note that in the context of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 through 17, that Jesus' Jesus's voice seems to be specifically directed at the Christians who will meet him in the air, uh, as they're going to meet him is the immediate response to his call. And the word that's mentioned there, that they are um, caught up in the air, uh, is where we get our word rapture from, coming from uh, harpazo in the Greek, and it means to grab by force, that they are retrieved um, without effort on their own. Now, what we see, though, it, both in 1 Corinthians and in the 1 Thessalonians passage, when compared to what's going on in Revelation, is that Paul is addressing a, a very different issue from the one John is seeing in the Revelation. Paul was speaking to a fear of what will happen to Christians who have already died when Jesus comes back. 
while the revelation is revealed to John as the judgment at the end of the world. So the language is different and the tone is different. Not the language they're speaking, but the, the words that they're using. Uh, that's different. And the tone is different. And added to that, that the rapture itself is not mentioned in Revelation. So, so what is this rapture concept, this idea that's not in the book of Revelation? Is this a real thing? Well, what we see next in the very next chapter in 1 Thessalonians, from we just read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul begins speaking about a period of judgment. He writes that Christians are not the recipients of God's wrathful judgment, which these next chapters in Revelation, starting in Revelation 6, are all about judgment. Well, the judgment there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 could specifically refer to the white throne judgment of Revelation 20. The language and the placement of the discussion after 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 leads me to believe that the catching of the believers in the air, meeting Jesus uh, uh, in the air, that will happen before the judgments that God lays on the earth beginning in Revelation chapter 6. But again, the language is vague. The separate scriptures do not specifically reference each other from 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians 4 and Revelation. Uh, so I could totally be wrong in all of this. But all of those scriptures put together with the words being used and the tone that is different, it leads me to believe that there will be what we call a rapture of Christians. They will be grabbed by force. They will be caught up um, before these judgments happen, beginning in Revelation chapter 6 here. But there's something also we need to be aware of, that even if Christians are raptured before these judgments begin, even if Christians are raptured before these judgments begin, there still will be other people coming to know Christ. Other people will still have the opportunity for salvation throughout what happens next in the book of Revelation. In fact, we come to find out that many will believe during this specific period. And so let's look then at Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven scrolls, and I heard one of the living creatures, one of the four living creatures, say with a voice like thunder. Now notice he says there thunder, where Jesus had a voice like a trumpet. Here it's like the voice is like, a, is like thunder. So one of the four living creatures calls out with a voice like thunder. He says, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, when the four living, one of the four living creatures says, come, who is he speaking to? Well, it seems to be, and by the response to the command, um, that he's speaking to the rider. He's not speaking to John. He's speaking to the rider. And the rider comes out on a white horse. Now, this is similar to Jesus's white horse in Revelation chapter 19, but that's really where the similarity ends, is in the whiteness of the horse. And the white horse is a symbol of a mighty and victorious warrior. Now, the rider also had a bow, which was a tool of war, a symbol of war. And notice he also had a crown. 
a crown that was given to him. This is a victory wreath, not a royal crown. It's a victory wreath. So his authority is handed to him by God. His authority and the victories come only because God allowed it. He can only do what God allows and no more. And he comes conquering and to conquer. He was, um, that is his purpose, is to conquer the world. And most, right, most scholars see this writer as the final Antichrist, bringing the world under one governmental rule. Now, Scripture, I mean, actually, the book of Revelation doesn't mention the, you know, this being the Antichrist concept, uh, but um, the, the, the phrase Antichrist comes from other passages of Scripture that talk about um, Antichrist rising up um, at certain points throughout the future, or now our history and our own future, um, that people who, who who rise against Jesus and His Church are what are called antichrists, and that this one here is really the ultimate version of that. And so, this uh, antichrist is what we will call him uh, here as we look through this as well. Uh, rises up, and he will bring the world under one rule government, uh, one world government. He will conquer everything. Now, just as an aside, there are some who, who take note of the fact that the writer has a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows. And so they would say that this signifies his conquering, or that his conquering will be done in a manner other than war, um, because he doesn't have any arrows. But John isn't necessarily describing everything that's going on. I mean, he doesn't describe the rider, you know, wearing a robe, and he doesn't describe if the horse has a saddle. You know, he, he doesn't describe that. And Beside, and um, that doesn't even include the fact that the bow itself is a symbol of war. Historically, it's a symbol of war. So the lack of mention of arrows doesn't necessarily mean that battles will not be fought to conquer. It, I think, means the contrary, that battles will be fought to conquer. And so this is, seal number one is broken. The first rider comes in to, to issue judgment on the world, and he's given authority to conquer the world. Now, the second seal is opened here in verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people could slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Now, the rider of the red horse here, he's also given authority by God. But notice, he was not given authority to kill. However, by removing the peace from the earth, people felt nothing but war. The people would kill each other indiscriminately. They would slay each other, violently and mercilessly slaughter each other. So this would be a terribly violent period of time that, that would seem to be unprecedented in the history of the world. And a sword is given to this writer. Is, is a symbol of, of the bloodshed that will flow. The sword's not used to kill anyone because this writer doesn't have authority to kill anyone. The, the sword of the writer is simply a symbol. It's used to take away the peace of the world itself. Now, seal number three, verse five. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. 
So something like a voice comes from the center of the four living creatures. Now remember where the four living creatures are located. They are around the throne of God. And so the voice comes from in the midst of them. So it would seem that this voice is the voice of God. And God gave the writer specific limitations on his authority as well, just like the other two writers. He says, a quart of uh, wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, a quart was about one man's ration for a day, about how much a full-grown working man could eat for a day. And a denarius was about one day's wage. So he'd work a day to have enough food for one day. Uh, but barley was cheaper. And so the poorer uh, people or people who um, had a family <laughs> uh, would purchase barley so that they could purchase more at the same price as the wheat so they could all eat. Um, but what we see in these prices in one quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, is that these prices at the end of the first century are about 11 to 16 times the price um, that are typically listed at the end of the first century. So this is pretty exorbitant. I mean, it would be an equivalent to today's time, you know, 2020, of buying a gallon of milk for about 40, 42, 45 bucks. Uh, that's a lot. That, that, that is a, a gouging price. That there is a famine going on, and as a result, the prices are raised significantly. I mean, that's what the, the black horse and the scales represent famine. And the prices here um, to not you know, harm the oil and the wine, those things will not be increased. Uh, and the fact of these prices, it seems to indicate a, a, fairly, a fairly severe famine, but not an unbearably devastating one. It's pretty brutal, but it's not as bad as it could be. But then the fourth seal is opened. Verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. So the horse is pale. He's ashen color. And the rider does not have a symbolic prop like the other riders all did. And so this could indicate that the horse's color and the presence of the rider himself are enough of a symbol of death, that they don't need something else. And the horse's pale color is that of a, of a, of a corpse. Death is riding on the horse. Um, it's also interesting the fact that death is riding on a horse, and it says that Hades is following along behind him. Hades has no form of transport. However, its closeness with death throughout the book of, Re book of Revelation demonstrates um, a link between the two. So whether Hades is writing or, or not is not the issue here. What matters is understanding that Hades followed in the wake of death. They're symbolic and not physical. A side note as well, death is a means, Hades is a location. In addition, we're going to see in the coming weeks that Hades is actually a different location from eternal hell. That's just a teaser for the coming weeks, so get ready for that one. Death is given the, the level of authority to kill one quarter of the population of the earth. So again, man, if this were 2020, this would be two billion people would be killed. 
Death is given the authority to kill a quarter of the population. I mean, this is a massive, devastating blow, even as conquering the world would be bad, uh, removing peace so that people kill each other would be bad, you know, terrible famine would be bad, to the point now that a quarter of the world dies, maybe utilizing those other two riders in the process of conquering and removing peace and bringing famine that could be playing into here, the fourth seal, the fourth rider. But this fourth rider kills with violence, with famine. The previous rider brought famine, but he wasn't given the authority to kill. This rider is. Uh, he also kills with pestilence. That means widespread contagious disease. He also kills with wild animals. Now, these four specific things that rider number four kills with, violence, famine, uh, widespread contagious disease, pestilence, and wild animals, are mentioned another place in Scripture. God says in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21, that he is going to bring these four you know, um, um, agents, bringers of death, against Israel because of their repeated lack of repentance, repeated intentional unbelief. Um, and so this is mentioned there, and it's mentioned here as a form of judgment. These writers, these four writers in succession get worse with each onslaught. But then the fifth seal is opened, and we get an image of something different than the previous four openings. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. This imagery is, is unique to Revelation. They are under the altar, under it, not around it, not on top of it, uh, not near. They're under it. This could be a place of honor, a place of security, but it could also represent the, the sacrifice that they made for the gospel. They were killed. They were slain. That word slain that's used there is the same word that's used uh, back with the rider of the bright horse, uh, the bright red horse in Revelation 6, 4, about him slaying. They were killed because um, of their faithfulness to communicate the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So they're under the altar. They're there. Um, they have sacrificed their lives for the sake of the gospel. And they speak, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So the martyrs here, these, these Christians that are under the altar, these martyrs, now they're not asking for revenge. They are asking for justice. Um, they are, are asking God to exercise his own attributes. They are worshiping God by declaring that he seek justice. Now, they could also be asking God how much longer until the end comes, and they know that the final judgment must come first. And they're given white robes of victory here, and they're told to rest. But we're not told in the passage, John does include, include the detail of who is actually telling them to rest, because that's not the point of what he's saying. He's saying that God's plan must be worked out to its full conclusion, and that includes a place for more martyr, uh, martyrs. He will, God will be glorified by their deaths, 
which could mean that more people will come to the gospel because of the death of these under the altar. Verse 12, the sixth seal. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So we have an earthquake, we have uh, a blood red moon, we have a sun that's been darkened, we have stars falling out of the sky, we have the sky seeming to vanish, I mean stuff's flying through it like it's not even there, Uh, mountains and islands are being removed, Um, this is crazy stuff that's happening. Devastation. The natural world order is being flipped on its head. This deal with the sun turning black and the moon turning red, uh, Joel chapter 2 verse 31 mentions a blood-colored moon. uh, Many scholars think this is like, you know, a very severe and extended eclipse uh, as what happens when the moon passes in front of the sun. The sun is blacked out and the moon takes on a reddish hue. Um, But whatever it is, the normalcies of the earth are disrupted in these ways. Sun and moon change colors, like in an eclipse. Uh, stars are falling. Meteorites are falling to the earth. The, si- the sky is seemingly open because so much stuff is falling on the earth. And they have this huge earthquake that shakes with such intensity that it seems that it is moving mountains and islands from their initial resting place. So a complete devastation of the natural order. It it signifies beyond the shadow of a doubt that the end of the world is at hand. And that very fact becomes obvious to everyone living in the earth at the time. Look in verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. That's a pretty ironic language, right? Wrath from a peaceful animal like a lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So we see fear grips the world, great and small alike. Seven classes of people are listed here. Uh, kings, great ones, generals, rich, powerful, slave, free. Uh, This signifies the completeness of the list. This is everybody in the world is fearful of what's happening. A time of, of great fear is going on. And yet people would still be saved. But the wrath that's here, the judgment here, is aimed at the unrepentant of the world. But it it is really fascinating to me that here the unbelievers are revealed to recognize the judgment being from God and from Jesus. But still, on the whole, the world will not turn to him for salvation. Some will, but most will not. And yet even in that, the promise of salvation still exists for any who would turn to him. This actually was promised by Isaiah in a prophecy. 
Because no one can outrun the justice of God, and in the same line of thinking, no one can outrun the promises of God. Isaiah prophesied, For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed. Just what happens here in Revelation 6. But God says, My steadfast love will not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So God's promise of salvation and peace is still available to any who believe. And so just as you know, uh, first century readers of this prophecy would take this as a, a, an impetus, a, a, as motivation for urgency. We today should take what is happening here as motivation for urgency to bring people to Jesus so they don't have to experience this judgment, so they can know Jesus now and for all time. Because in uh, uh, John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus tells us in his prayer to God that eternal life begins when a person believes, not when a person dies. So the second a, a human person believes in Jesus as the Son of God, his death and resurrection, that very second, their eternal life begins. It's the same eternal life they will have. In a hundred years from now, in a thousand years from now, they can experience its beginning now if they would simply believe. So what we read here in Revelation of the judgments yet to come should spur us on to urgency to point people to Jesus at any and every opportunity. And we're going to continue to look at at more of what will uh, occur um, at the end of all things in the coming um, weeks. So thank you for joining us today in this. If you found this helpful, if you found this enjoyable, please uh, uh, like this podcast, share this podcast. Um, That will help us out tremendously. If you have a thought of something maybe we missed, uh, please drop us a line. Shoot us an email from our website, dequeen.church. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Thank you for joining us today, and, and I will catch you in the next one.